Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. I have to apologize to everyone for missing a week in the programming schedule, but I I seriously tried to get this episode out on time. Uh, This last week, my partner and I moved from Austin, Texas to Santa Fe, New Mexico, so that we can start a family here and I can work full-time at the Santa Fe Institute without losing my mind going back and forth between Santa Fe and Austin every two weeks. So here we are, and um, lots of exciting developments on the horizon, but I think I did learn a thing or two about my limits this week uh, in between closing shop in Austin and uh, loading and unloading a 15-foot U-Haul, although admittedly we had a lot of help from our wonderful friends. But if you ever want to know what it's like to lose your mind trying to figure out how to fit a 1950 square foot rental into a 570 square foot rental, I'm your boy. (laughs) So anyway, it is with great pleasure that I offer this second part of this wonderful conversation with John David Ebert, Michael Aaron Kamins, and Ikiyu Sojin. Uh, obviously, that is a pseudonym, a reference to the rebelliously sensual Zen monk. At any rate, three very smart and interesting guys who, when we sat down in person, uh, wonderful things emerged out of it. And it's a real pleasure to finally get to see this one through. Uh, but, but first, I want to give a quick shout out to the new Patreon supporters, as as well as people who have upped their Patreon pledges. Uh, Jed Disentrope, Darren Basil, Ben Lockhart, and Rian Bevan. Thank you all so much, uh, as well as to the folks who have been sending one-time donations to at future fossils on venmo that was really sweet to wake up to that wonderful message this morning thanking me for the podcast so those of you who have been tracking this show know that i have a grown-up job now for the first time in my entire life i'm not simply relying on subscriber gratitude to survive uh, but my life is much much fuller than it used to be and it's getting harder and harder to find the time to continue putting out the show on a regular basis and the more folks are helping subsidize the extraordinary time and energy it takes to release every one of these episodes uh, something on the order of you know five to 15 hours a week realistically just to record and, and edit and publish everything Not to mention the time it takes to research the guests and to uh, inspire them to appear on the show. And if I were not so grateful to the restaurant full of people that are paying for this podcast every month, I don't know that I would feel a a serious responsibility to continue. I mean, frankly, I'm kind of over the conceit of this show that it is primarily for a large but unborn audience, and I'm really interested in cultivating something wonderful with the living listeners that I have. On that note, our first Patreon sci-fi book club discussion, exploring the wonderful, freaky, totally subversive, and challenging work of science fiction, Blind Sight by Peter Watts, 
will be on January 31st. I think we'll probably hop on a Zoom call for about two hours, maybe more, to talk about that book. And everyone who supports the show on Patreon is welcome. So uh, for more information, hop on over, drop in two bucks or whatever. Uh, you can always cancel after the book club meeting if you decide we're a bunch of fools. <laughs> or, uh, you know, or just stay on it. And it would be great to have you in that conversation because I think discussing sci-fi is a fantastic way to anchor and apply all of the philosophical ideas that we discuss in this show. What kind of futures we really want to help usher into being. Uh, if that's even a correct way of thinking about time. I'm not convinced it is due to a decade-long preoccupation with the evidence for retro-causation, uh, if that's even the right way of thinking about that. Anyway, you're all wonderful. I adore you. And enjoy this episode. It's it's fantastic. So, <laughs> thanks and enjoy. So we're talking about snow crash and the decay of language and how like having a universal translator allows everyone to have their own language. And oh, interesting, yeah. You know, and so you get you get to a, a point where you've sort of taken the the epistemological question as far as you can possibly take it in terms of like are other people are other entities conscious? You know, because yeah. I mean, that's the that's I think I think that's what's going on with this the, this being the hardest question to come out of DMT space. Like, are these things so really questions? Are these things really aliens? You know, are yeah. these things really like are these things really there, or are they in in a sort of Jungian, not Jung, but Jungian sense, right? Mm-hmm. That these gods are most people are are, are <coughs> sort of want to misinterpret that as being that the gods are merely parts of our own yeah merely something being projected so I was talking to John about there's another way that archetypes are like living beings right that's how Crowley saw them in the tarot deck he saw that so there's so the thing is like if you buy into a non-duality there's no difference between the inside and the outside so you have the inside uh, Jungian projection and you have the outside uh, distinct alien or whatever things yeah, projection, but really they could be just the same thing along this cycle that you're constantly experiencing. But but then you get into subtler questions about agency. Like it's still the case that if the thing is primarily just a symbol projected into your your virtual reality by your body, that it does in some sense live out outside of you. Like, even if we're assuming non-duality, you still get into, like, causal sort of relationships within that, yeah. right? And so you, see, you can still ask, like, so is this thing just, I mean, maybe it's the distributed agency of this landscape speaking through my body, and therefore it's, a, a, in a sense, a uniquely human, if, you know, also transcendent thing. Mm-hmm. But, um, but then it's not necessarily, like... The, the question remains, like, is it conscious, except through me? And the answer in that case would be no. Hmm. Whereas, like, there's the sense in the, in the sort of more basic 
version of this conversation where it's like the simple, like the naive realism, like does it exist outside of me? Where it's like if this thing, even though it is distributed, still has its own sort of agency, its own consistent thing that is more than merely something that shows up for people. Mm-hmm. And that's what that's what Tim Morton's getting at with hyper objects. Right. You know, that's the question is like, you know, we basically can't answer that question and so we're stuck uh, treating every object that we interact with as though it might be like the face of some deity that we, we're not really capable of perceiving. Well, James Hellman would say that, that that's really important. That we, that's what the psyche does, you know, and that that's what soul. That's like that's what yeah. you have to do that to have psychological life, you know, mm-hmm. to personify. Yeah. Things. So that kind of actually reminds yeah. me of Taleb. You gotta avoid the risk of ruin on this particular subject. Say more. Um. Man, it's hard to say. Well, it's it's almost like Pascal's wager, right? You have to avoid the risk of ruin by just up increasing the probability of your survival as oh. much as you can. So by going along with him as conscious, so just accept that they're real. So that'll help you. Start, you have a, like a dog going along with the, some new owners. So just go along with that. They're going to feed you and take care of you. That we should just go along with these archetypal images. I, for one, welcome our new squid overlord. Squid overlord, <laughs> yeah. That shows up I like mind. the flying pizza dude. You know, mm-hmm. What is that? The flying spaghetti monster. Yeah. yeah. But, so, yeah, <laughs> I think there's something to that. Although the question of, like, what happens if you disregard the sapience of this table, I think most people are just going to, like, laugh at you. Uh, but maybe that's a sign of how crude we are. You mean that, there's, that they're going to laugh at you because there's no be- beings above the sapiens at the table? You mean? Well, just that, just that, like you know, this line of reasoning gets us into some very like freshman dorm room mushroom trip kind of spaces where, like, my you know, uh, you're, you're asking like, I'm aware of the mug, and the mug is aware of me, <laughs> you know, and I am just the mug experiencing itself. Some, something interesting that you might find interesting is that. Um, but Q was telling us about a DMT trip he had that featured a clown. And the clown, and he'll tell you about it in a second, but the clown is this thing that shows up in all these DMT trips. And I just read this book, not by Michael Pollan, but by another another guy that just put out a book called it's about, it's Psychedelics and, and the Outer No, Home. I don't want to do DMT. It's like, it's, you ruined it for me because I, Blue, I don't want to see a clown. <laughs> yeah, so, so it's called it Imagine Mel Wolf, but like... A thousand times more. Yeah, I really... Let me I'm sorry. Just, let me, let me, let me set it up. So this is a great place to take it. Yeah, so let, me set, let me set it up and then the key will tell the story. And, I mean, and then me and John have this whole archaeology of the clown. John had this whole thing where the architect was... We kid you not. The archaeology of the clown. I, I and ma- Michael and I mapped it out yesterday. We need someone that can look up the name of the guy that wrote this book. Um, but he just it, the book came out recently it's, I think it's called Other Worlds and it's it's a book on psychedelics but oh, on, yeah. on Psy you it's, have that you brought so it with you yeah I did bring it with me today it was the oh, one okay. joke I didn't bring and I'm right. like why didn't I bring that with me okay, but, um, that's alright don't worry so he has a whole se- chapter on there about what this DMT creature is that people are seeing and he saw it as well and and trying to examine this clown type creature so, so <clears throat> have you seen this thing <clears throat> I haven't seen it Nikki is <clears throat> in the you bathroom seen it and I know other people who... He's done DMT, well. the actual... Yeah, the actual smokable so, yeah. Uh, yeah. compound. And <clears throat> did you encounter entities? I mean, I've encountered 
entities, but I actually haven't smoked DMT. But you have done yeah. 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 All right, all right. Uh, and there's this common right. And so there's this common theme of the, the clown, like the clown. You know, this clown archetype or whatever that he saw. And I know other people that saw it. McKenna talks about these machine elves that kind of sound like clowns. And then, and then we start thinking about what. What is the what is the clown? What is it even? What is the clown? As My a, guess as is Harlequin. The, the, and is a, it a real being? Originated right? like an Italian comic opera, you know, <clears throat> uh, as as Harlequin, and then it got passed over and westernized. I mean, I'm just making a guess. So okay, so talk about that because that's that's yeah. Well, I want to hear well, the Harlequin story. The Harlequin the figure who dresses in a motley outfit. Yeah. you know, it's all patchwork associated uh, with the jester, right? funny hat. Yeah, and he's sort of like the. The, the funny figure in Italian comic opera, you know, he's, he's always turning out. Picasso liked to paint Harlequin quite a bit, and uh, it's just this patchwork figure. It's like he's not there's a he's lacking wholeness, but for precisely that reason, he can say whatever he wants, and we give him permission to do. We compare him to the fool in the tarot oh, deck. Wow. Yes. Right. Yeah, right. And the interest and the Joker in the in the traditional card deck. We were talking about this yesterday. The interesting thing why it can do what it do is it, it, what it does is because. It's not nailed down to any signified. All the rest of the pack is the series of 52 signifiers. Each one of them is nailed firmly to a signified. Mm -hmm. um, so you can't mess with the meaning. But the Joker is the only one in games that allow the Joker that uh, is a floating signifier. So you can plug him into any... And he messes with the meaning. ...sign regime that you want to. Um, so he's sort of already, like, looking ahead to this sort of postmodern, deconstructed, Derridian landscape where... We get the sense that all the signifiers now have come unglued for, from their signifieds, and they're floating now. So we can, uh, in, in the negative sense, is that it represents the disintegration of our traditions. So we have to kind of be comfortable about letting all of that go. But on the other hand, it's a new opportunity to create new meaning systems out of these yeah. sliding signifiers that don't stick to signifieds. We can do whatever we want with them. You yeah, also, so it's an opportunity. But I, you also said that means all signifiers become clowns, and Donald right. Trump is a clown, right? People yeah. compare him to a clown. Right. Uh, so when clown, we relate this right? I mean, to a more complete uh, political theory, there's a lot of people nowadays who are into free speech who are also into this thing called patchwork, which is basically this decentralized system of city-states where each one of them have their own governance system. Sounds a lot like the post-American landscape of Snow Crash, which is not a pleasant place to be. Let's be clear about that. Right. You know, there is there is that issue of... And I, I want to get back to clowns here for some strange <laughs> reason. <laughs> but, but... I, I know, know, you can't stop thinking about it. Once it starts, that's what the clown does. And it hijacks right. your brain. So this is when you map the clown onto the political system. That's what, what it is. Interesting. The, uh, yeah. the patchwork and the, the Trump. They're the same thing. Well, I mean, wouldn't you say like decentralization as a response to that yeah, sort so, of pathological? So really, this is egomania. a symbolic look at how accelerationism formed. Why they like Trump and they like the patchwork. It's all part of this uh, symbol system. But you know, then you get into this is the fool in the Crowley deck. Yeah. Oh, there's a tiger on that card too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but a lot of different animals. He, that's. That's um. He also looks like part. He looks like Zelda, by the way. The he green, does kind of, yeah. The green, the looks, so looks like Ebola riding the tiger. So, so what is? Uh, tell us about your DMT trip. Oh man, it's like so. That was my second trip, and I had uh, my friend over, 
and he's a real interesting guy. Like I do all my trips with him. So he was my friend from. Uh, wait, actually, I shouldn't tell, talk too much about it. Yeah, it's, it's he's, he's, he's neither here nor yeah, there. We already know too much. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so so that was my second trip and his first trip. So we went to my room and we just took as many hits as we can. I think it was like three pretty big breath, and we were there for like. 15 minutes so I got into this room after being sent through the hyperspace got into this very concrete room and it's like 8 dimensional non-Euclidean geometry and it's a lot of different colors I think man they're all reflecting each other so you see a lot of colors but really there's like one theme to the color which is I think mostly red white and black but really it's like all the colors were there it's hard to describe. But anyway, this clown was jumping in and out of me. and But it's also kind of unfolding itself and folding back into itself at the same time in these weird fractal patterns in eight-dimensional space. And it's almost, it's almost like Cthulhu in a way. It's got the tentacles wrapping in and out of itself and jumping out in and out of me at the same time. And that was the most terrifying experience of my life. I've never felt fear like that ever. And was this like a? Did you see this like a virtual landscape that like enfolded you? Um, I was in like there. like your uh, visual cortex has been hijacked somehow by the yeah, drug. Yeah. So th- this is. So I should actually clarify. There's um, closed eye visuals and open eye visuals. So that was a closed eye visual. And but the thing is like. You almost feel like there's a force dragging you into there that you shouldn't open your eyes. It's almost like your eyes are shut down by gravity and they're not allowed to open. And if you open your eyes, something bad's going to happen to how you are in the DMT world. Mm. So it's almost like one of those uh, survival online game, online survival games. If you log off, your character's still there. That's why you got to build a house around it. So it's, like oh, that so, it's like, so it's like, man, if I open my eyes and log off, log out, some, someone's, the clown is just going to get me and kill me in the game. It's like, fuck, I'm still dead. That's really interesting yeah. because I do think that I was, the first, my first experience with ayahuasca in Peru was actually two different nights in 2011. Mm-hmm. And um, I have very little experience with this, but like, anyway, out of that, there was, I encountered this, uh, very different entity, which is sort of, I don't want to get off this topic mm-hmm. and into the topic of clowns, except for the fact that it was a mantis-like creature, mm-hmm. and that's very often also reported from DMT. Yeah, mantis-type stuff. And also that there are real, living species of mantises that look like clowns, because they're like, oh, they're like, they evolved to look like, uh, like, pe- like orchids, like flower mm-hmm. petals. You know, and they're very popular on on like Pinterest and stuff like that. You know, these these clown looking mantises. So that's just a weird connection. But anyway, this uh, this being explained to me, and and John, this is where I want to take every conversation, and uh, uh, with the people who I feel like can hack it because um, this, I feel like you have the the sort of study of uh, cultural matrices for me to make sense of this whereas like for me this was an experience 
that I've been plugging in cultural reference points to ever since, but I, right. I, I didn't have like a, a, a scaffold for this at first. And it was saying um, to me basically that that kind of extraterrestrial being that it is was actually appearing to me through projection from the like hot, dense plasma at the center of the galaxy, which is so hot and so dense and so highly uh, gravitic that no biological life could possibly exist there. But the electromagnetic fields of that are so complex that it generates like a holographic ecosystem of stuff in this superfluid matrix. Sheldrix is about the sun. And that there are basically like dragons on the sun and genies that, the, that like the, the, the Ifrit are like so, real so you beings. So you ayahuasca trip? Yeah, that it explained to me that it was basically of a class of beings that are like the beings of flame. But it appeared to me as molten metal. And it was basically saying that that's that's our physical, our actual physical uh, reality is is of the that like plasma, of, a plasma, plasma of molten metal at like unthinkable gravity. We've been talking about the plasma petrol. We were, by the way, yeah, yesterday we were talking about. That. But they're saying, but we don't. The point being, he's like to to your trip. He was saying we don't. It was saying we don't experience ourselves in this way. We just appear to you in this way because you are colder and slower than we are. But. You have a plasmatic component. Like, you live on this planet with, like, an ionosphere, and your bodies are made out of electromagnetic forces. Right. And, like, you have an electromagnetic body, but because you live in a cold, slow place, your awareness and evolutionary trajectory has concentrated itself on the, on the solid form of consciousness rather than on the plasma form of consciousness. Yeah, Dude, I'm visualizing all this. Man, this it looks like an Alex Gray painting. What, what you were just describing, and the, the way he's got all the yeah, matrices. Yeah, and meanwhile, he's within like... Within matrices, within matrices. Meanwhile, this chrome eyeless, eight-foot-tall chrome mantis, like black chrome mantis, is like piercing me with these like long, like jointless pinchers. Like, mm-hmm. like just like... But it's doing... It's like helping me. You know, it's like, just hold still, we're it's like taking care of some yeah. shit for yeah. you. Yeah. Here. So that's it's like cleaning that's, that's me. Like, 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 yeah, yeah. Sh- shamanic. Yeah, and I think that your experience, this is the thing, is like, I think that Holy that shit, shit is going that, on. That might time. be the same experience as yours, Bob, just interpreting a different way. Right, well, I, I think that the fact is that there are things jumping in and out so of us all the time. There are things that are like, other things that are like, performing surgery on us. But that when we get into these spaces, it's like, some of them, you're in a, you're trying to make dualistic sense of a non-dual experience, right? Where like you don't actually have a boundary, and so what, when the more you try to enforce a boundary on that experience, the more it feels like a violation. You know, the more it feels like you're being attacked because those. That was the difference between yeah, my first yeah, and my second. Yeah, I think that might be it. The MT trip. Oh, oh, you're helping me. I want to add. Oh, no, I'm being violated. I want to throw a difference in here, okay? Cause, yeah. But I think there's a significance as to why it's perceived as a clown. Because a clown is also... Because it's funny. It but pickles, the, man. No, but the clown <laughs> jumps in and out of you. The clown is satanic. <laughs> the clown tracks back to Mephistopheles and Lucifer. The clown is... It's evil in a way. It's like that you're having an experience, and I'm not saying this in the sense that I think it's literally evil. But <clears throat> in, in this Western tradition, the clown is is that's uh, Mephistopheles, that's Lucifer that you're experiencing. <clears throat> that you know that's the cl- that's what he would show up as. And John had this whole thing from Campbell that you're this. Yeah. So the archaeology of the clown goes further back from um, what was the one guy you were just saying the courtship court jester guy. Harlequin, Harlequin. 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 And it goes back to what you say about shamans, that shamans were uh, 
made into they clowns. They became the clowns. In, in Native American myth, the, like in, in Hopi, when the colonial myth, um, the shamans uh, get delegitimized as clowns, and they yeah. appear as, as clowns because they're making fun of this discredited... Who's making fun of that? They become the, the, Hopi, the, the Hopi big ego. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the big other of the Hopi. It's, mm-hmm. it's super ego. But who regards these right. shamans as... Clowns? They're anarchic. They use that you to delegitimize them. Yeah. And to so, make it into a so joke. So delegitimize so them. The, the, so the, very so often, how many clowns do we have? Clowns. Hold on, hold on. How many clowns do we have that are like... They're older gods that have been delegitimized, and they're inside right. there. This is what we're trying so to do. The clown is one way to yesterday. delegitimize uh, a shaman. Yeah, it's one way to delegitimize or another another group. That so that's, what's that's in our Western clown? Pull that Western clown yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, in one it in is. A, you're fun, you're trying to be funny, but you're trying to do something important in society to communicate a message. Well, that's what comedians can get away with all messages. Yeah, yeah. a full card. They can right. they float around. Yeah, they're supposed to funny. have the license to do that. So I don't understand why they're all getting in trouble. Late noblest trolls represent that, and then you have legit trolls also that are just like you know they just they're walking Probably like two years ago, I was trying to write this manual on how to do trolling properly. It's almost like this like <laughs> tantra technique. It's like you gotta troll in this right way to it <laughs> so that you can actualize your goals and position yourself in a way where you are kind of exposed. I think you've taken trolling and made an art way. form out of it. You know, I've yeah, been yeah, watching your right. tweets. His and tweets it's like, are like the best. He's like inventing a new genre. And we, they're so good, I don't even want to tweet because it's like, Akuyu's doing it for me. Yeah, he's perfect. Uh, yeah, that's how I am. So this idea was kind of yeah, right. almost confirmed exactly. because uh, this one guy on, he has a pretty good podcast too, by the way, so Vincent Horn. Okay, he, I know does, Vincent Horn. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, so he he actually liked that thread of mine saying how trolling is kind of like Zen meditation. That's well, awesome. Yeah, Vince, Vince and I are both uh, expats of the Ken Wilber integral scene, actually. We knew oh, each other living in Boulder. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Because I know that he, he <laughs> tries to combine McLuhan and and Buddhism, but I didn't know about the Wilber thing. Yeah, well, you know. You lived like, up in Boulder for a while? For four years, yeah. Oh, I, know. I lived there for two. Yeah. Which two? Uh, that would have been uh, 09 and 10. We were there at the same time. You're kidding me, really? No, I was you 2007 were? to 11. Oh my god, that's crazy. That weird. That is weird, yeah. It's life is stranger. The older I get, and I'm I'm gonna turn fifty this month, uh, the stranger it seems to me. You know, it, it's like you would think that it would be the opposite paradigm that as you get older you acquire this wisdom, you have this intelligence, and you, so you're figuring it out. But it's no, it's been the opposite. It's like it's getting more and more mysterious. It's like I'm trying to cover everything, but I can't it's stuff that keeps happening, like that Uber driver that picked us up yesterday who had attended Pacifica graduate uh, school. Oh, yeah. He was there for a while, and he was a young man. He's like, I know astrology. Yeah, that's where I was. <laughs> that's totally random, right? That was just a random Uber driver. And the dude was yeah. totally into Joseph Campbell and astrology, and he knew it. He was talking about the transits. Well, well that's when you wonder, did Google, uh, like, get... You know, extend what what hyper object extended its tentacles into the Uber algorithm so that guy ended picking you up. It's a synchronicity. Yeah. It's a synchronicity. Well, I want to the clown. So, yes. so are you, are you, I know it's <laughs> you, it's the clown. It's a clown for a reason. He, he like sticks to you. Well, it's because wait, it's what all, you said the, so, the devil because so, we're because we yeah we need to like put it, it somewhere. We, right. So my interpretation is it's not the devil. It's really. The cl- clown is really the old wise man. He's the well, Taoist yeah. sage. Yeah. Which, uh, right, right. So there's this one archetype in uh, Taoism, in like Chinese 
in the Christian tradition, there's only one. That's right. That's, that's called uh, the Law Wantong, which is kind of like the old the old kid who's like he's like super wise, but he does like silly childish things, like Milton Erickson. Yeah. What was his name again? What what the 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 boy that you were just talking the name? Is there oh oh, name? that's it's not a it's not a one character. It's a archetype, I think. What's it, what's this, what's it called? You Law call? Wantong. Law Wantong. Law. Lao, yeah, yeah. Okay. and he's like the trickster archetype. Uh, not not exactly trickster. Well, I guess it could be, but like this, always this very very old person who's probably like 150 years old with the long, uh, white beard, long white hair. So like drunken yeah. master is an example. Yeah, yeah, of that. yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. It's the Lao archetype. Yeah. yeah, it's one of the major archetypes in China. Yeah, and that's a when you wise have, old man. Yeah, that whole thing, like, shut up, old man. What do you know? No, when they go, like, yeah, that's a different world up. over there. They're like, yeah. speak, old man. You know? Yeah, exactly. Except for the old man is actually the child. He nietzsche's uh, the camel, the the right. lion, the child. Well, the guy, the guy that dis- so the, the whole thing, the guy that disrespects the wise, the crazy old man in the in that like trope is always getting his ass kicked in thirty seconds, <laughs> like, <laughs> like monkey and journey to the west. Yeah, yeah. He's always the only people that don't respect that guy. Seem to be like you know cruising for a bruising. Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. You know, whereas in the in the West, it's entirely opposite. Like we yeah. we're like that. You know that. That's, yeah. Well, Merlin was kind of like that. For, well, for, that was the closest that the Christian West got to having a wise old man. Yeah. Than. So that's the and, and Faust maybe kind of also the SJW Faust was back to the yeah no yeah so in the West what what so the SJW phenomenon in the West I think that's because. There's no goofy, wise old men here. Like, you don't really view the Elder like that. Well, that's yeah. kind of like Zelda, because it kind of, Zelda recaptures that for the West. It's got the whole Merlin yeah. tradition and the yeah, Knights of the Table and that whole... There was a time when Christianity had that that mythological landscape to it, and then it doesn't anymore. Even Thompson was into this whole... He had this idea, this, this what Christianity, this Christian Irish Christianity that could have happened if... Or no, what, what was it that with the Vikings didn't... Um, yeah, Irish Christianity, exactly They, they right. didn't invade a certain yeah. place that there would have been a different... Lindisfarne. Oh, that's yeah. Lindisfarne. Yeah, was. yeah. I mean, that was... Yeah. And that's why it was such a mindfuck. Uh, calling back to episodes 42 and 43, where <laughs> I interviewed Bill Thompson about his Lindisfarne retrospective. Um, that was the thing that so that always confused me about his decision to name this this planetary think tank group uh, this renaissance of planetary culture, Lindisfarne, because it was totally self-defeating. The idea, the idea that you're going to like rhyme history mm-hmm. by saying, "Here is our like last bastion of visionary mystics," yeah, the holding out, fight in him, though, yeah, holding out against this, do, this sort of fight love, the, you know, the collapse of civilization. <laughs> it's like he he started on false premises, like, and he complains that this is why you know he he, he like bitches about. You, you're mowing Thompson down? Like I love William Am Thompson. I hearing this right? I love him. <laughs> but this is my one critique, is that he bitches about... You called me out when I was doing it. You were no. like, fuck you, no, man. I'm sorry to put your Wikipedia page back up. Forget that. <laughs> if you're dissing Thompson... <laughs> Listen, I love him. I am. We all I love respect him. We all love everybody. But I think that he made a mistake in framing it as defeat, even if he's right, and yeah, the, the yeah, fucking thing yeah. is, the older I get, the writer he is. Yeah, I know. you know, the it's, more obvious it is that we are in a collapse phase. You know, that's but Spangler. 
But but at the same time, I I, I turned a Thompson on to Spangler. Um, by the way, yeah, yeah but you have to the optimist all the time. Well, but exactly, will transform it. That's like, exactly you know. that's it. Is that is that to the degree that you just sort of accept it, you're not going to win. To the degree that you're like, aha, but we can be canny about this. And you know, his thing was, um, you know, he he bitched about Buckminster Fuller being yes. a media. Whore, basically. Yes, I remember that, that. That he was just like Buckminster Fuller was just he would run downstairs to see if his name was in the newspaper that morning. And it's like so what? It's like it's like, yeah, but you know what he did? I would too. <laughs> you know what he did? Is that, and you're like, on the other hand. Is that you know, he he was a far more effective uh virus for these ideas than than Bill because and, you know, because one, yeah, yeah. Because he chose to frame it in terms of you know, don't fight the system, build a better mousetrap, we can do this, there is a way, it, you know, the resources are dependent on our ability to uh, imagine or perceive them, yeah. you know, and that's actually a much more useful message. Yeah, that, like, sounds, yeah, like, useful, that sounds Peter Thiel, because Peter Thiel always talks about this definite positive view if you want to create a better future. Yeah, except Peter Thiel is, like, the opponent, you know, in oh, this, what? I mean, in the sense that, like, Jeff Bezos and all of these guys, you know, they're, they're, they're the bad guy. Well, they're, well, not the bad guy, but there's a sense in which, there's a sense in which, uh, that kind of optimism can be taken too far. I feel like Buckminster Fuller was clearly and obviously still motivated by compassion mm-hmm. in this rather than just sort of, del- like, sort of, uh, dismissing or dodging the conversation about the fact that, yes, superabundance is gonna solve all of this someday, but, like, I mean, to be fair, like, you know, they're, they're, the the whole singularity university thing of like let's help a billion people right now. Mm-hmm. You know, that's very nobly motivated. But uh, there's something about the way that techno optimism yeah, is being discussed right. now, and right. Peter Thiel is absolutely participating in that conversation. That sounds the superabundance thing. It sounds a lot to me. Um, Peter Diamandis. You know, that's yeah, to, yeah. you know, but that yeah. that whole thing like it sounds a lot to me. Like the kind of shit that I hear at hippie music festivals, right. where so they're like, yeah. they're like, you just have to come from a place of abundance. And I'm like, oh, you yeah, mean, you mean, so you mean, I trust the opposite of attraction. Okay, so maybe so, I'm getting this wrong. So, so Thiel, he basically, his perspective is entirely Girardian. His main influence is Rene Girard, which is why I started to study Girard pretty deeply okay. in the past two years. So he has this model that's more based on mimetic desire. And the sacrifice of the founder of the, as the scapegoat. So, so, am I completely wrong about Teal in terms of his? Um, like, yeah, I would say he he's you know he's definitely talking to people in that crowd, but usually he's the one who's saying, "No, you're wrong. I'm right." And it, like the way he communicates is very interesting because he always kind of has the same message every single uh, interview he he goes into like it. It's actually very rare for him to share anything new in different interviews. Hmm. But he basically basically just paints this uh, picture of uh, we gotta solve mimetic conflicts type of picture, and then um, just the issue of like most of our consumption is due to the fact that we want things that we've been taught to want, and that that's that's what's killing you know that's what's causing all this trouble. Is that um, mimetic, right? That idea. Yeah, I don't know if he talks so much from that direction as much as like this. The uh, the founder needs to be like a extreme insider and extreme outsider. That's why. That's how you get someone who's crazy enough to create the better future. Mm. So he's like a good leadership 
like if you want to be in a leadership role, he's someone to look up to and figure out. Is that is that what you mean? Like, well, I would say no. He's more of a decision maker. He's someone who's able to identify valuable people before other people are. That's the role he plays, and that's what I try to understand out of him. Hmm. And you were saying that Peter Thiel, he has an idea about. But then, like the other funny thing is like. I I compare them to L. Bob Rife when I talk to uh, Neil Stevenson. Okay, so now, okay, you gotta go there with us, please. Okay, L. Bob Rife of Snow Crash, and, you know, Peter, T- you mean because of the seasteading thing, or? Um, more than just that. <laughs> it's like, really, he's got the seasteading, and he's like this, uh, very rich person who's into, like, the nature of mythology. Like, Peter Thiel's top recommended book was called um, things hidden since the foundation Gerard. of the world. Yeah, nice. it's Gerard. So yeah. he, he reads at yeah. that level? Yeah, so that's his so top I'm recommended book. probably completely wrong about him, according to IQ. So, so that's <laughs> his top recommended book. And and you see Al Bob Rife, he was also trying to find this code that's hidden since the, uh, begin, the beginning of the world. And... Yeah, what is it called? Foundation of the world, that was the... Yeah, it's 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 the the foundation of the world. Yeah, so anyway, and this code, it's it's, uh, John 1-1. Hey, John. (laughs) So in the beginning, there was the word, word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, right? So that's the code underlying the universe in Snow Crash, and that's also what Peter Thiel is trying to break when he's trying to create innovation through venture capital. I like the comparison of the, uh, the logos with with Stevenson mm-hmm. like that. The, you compared it to uh, to John. So what did Stevenson say to that? Um, so he didn't really know the reference to Theo. He's like, okay, I guess Theo's some random rich guy, cool. <laughs> huh. He has to know. Who That's strange. Yeah, I mean, he's. I mean, he he at least presents and seems from his work to be like one of the most well-read dudes in the world. Yeah, um, I mean, the thing is like. Have you read Thomas Pynchon? So I, I guess <laughs> yeah. I'm not too surprised. Yeah, because that, I'm not too surprised. He's because, like the uh, next level up from Stevenson. Like, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Because Thiel, when he wrote Zero to One, the mythological things weren't really that explicit. But if you look at his online lecture notes when he taught he taught that class at Stanford, you would see like this huge section on the founder as victim and the founder as God. So I don't know hmm. how many times I've read that little article over and over again probably like at least two dozen times so oh oh okay so so bringing it back to clowns you're saying that this is where this is where Trump comes in right because the CEO clown the CEO is the clown that is like sacrificed the Christ like sort of like eaten by the company anyone who's a true innovator you're you're at both you're at both extremes you you got the you're the extreme outsider and the extreme insider so so clowns are like extreme. You got the extreme scary part and also the extremely funny part. So you got the two poles that so, you contrast against. So that's so the <laughs> the extreme insider and the extreme outsider mm-hmm. is inside and outside of you at the same time, and that's the answer mm-hmm. to the question: Is it is mm-hmm. the in, is the entity uh, inside or outside of you? Yeah, you know, which means that, that Trump is inside all this, of us. And this, well, I, yeah, exactly. So I'm, I'm not sure that conclusion that. follows from your premise. And, and you this, just don't want it to follow. <laughs> from yeah, like your yeah. Right. yeah, so this is exactly what I wrote about in something unpublished. Uh, 
And it also kind of reflects back to why the same Taleb believes in God, because it's a fat tail distribution right there. You have on one extreme, you have the extreme outsiders, on one extreme, you have the extreme insiders. And when you do your investment strategy, that's what you do. You you invest in the very stable extreme insiders, but then you also invest in the very volatile extreme outsiders to try to capture all the positive uh, black swan benefits. Well, you just blew my mind because yeah. <laughs> because mm-hmm. I've my main metaphor for uh, investment mm-hmm. has been this the, came out of this paper, this research paper I read, talking about how they managed to computationally confirm the the sort of uh, the the general strategy that that people will take a dartboard approach, the monkey throwing at a dartboard, mm-hmm. and that. You know, if you everyone wants to hit the center of the dartboard, but actually the the small low cap mm-hmm. companies are the ones that grow really fast. And so, if you can find them earlier, they're the better early investments. Yeah. And but the, anyway, the point is that the so they're saying that basically randomness mm-hmm. is better investment than like trying to select for what you think are the um, best portfolios. And the point is that the the, the fucking dartboard is a harlequin. Yeah. Oh, yeah, so, shit. Yeah, and, yes, uh, right. So basically, I want to elaborate more on Taleb yeah. on this point. That uh, So he actually has, in one of the articles That's he wrote true, online, yeah. he has this thing about throwing things at a dartboard. And what he says is that people, most people want to aim for the center, right? So you want to have uh, accuracy and precision. Okay, so accuracy is like, are you close to the center or not? Well, precision is like, out of everything you throw, are they clustered? close together or not. Mm-hmm. So what he says is that actually most people think if you want to not fall off the board completely, you would want to aim for the center for accuracy, right? But he says, no, that's not the case. You actually want precision. So even if you're not directly centered, like if you're a bit off-centered, that's your cluster, at least you're not going off the edge. So you're not uh, risking death. Hmm... So how That's can we cool. tie that back into Legend of Zelda? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, there's lots of... Well, Michael will do it. Yeah. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> yeah, it's, just, it's all a cast. It's the whole landscape that we're describing is mm-hmm. it's, it's amazing in my mind, you know? But, I mean, there are lots of clowns in Zelda, right? In one way or another. But, I mean... It, there are... There was one thing that I actually was just thinking about was I had this... There's something that I was working on this writing thing I was that I was doing last year and I was talking about uh, like how the state is an alchemical lab- laboratory and and for some reason we worked out Donald Trump as an alchemical homunculus <laughs> for some reason we worked him out of our you know the clash of all of you know our psyches the other worked out this this figure and we have to understand we have to understand why yeah know? we've thrown him up just like the Germans threw Hitler up right yeah. that for, for them Hitler just made total sense he's going to pull us out of the depression he's well, going to put everyone that to work sense you know? either, but yeah I'm just saying that for, you know, I don't, I don't make all these projections but there's an unconscious reason yeah right and here's another interesting thing is that there's a lot of alchemical symbolism in Trump right he's golden yeah. Right. He's got right. these weird alchemical signifiers. Right. And it makes me think about, you know, the alchemists were always, they were spiritual. So they always insisted that their gold was not the vulgar gold. Right. right. They had the term like the non vulgi you know. Yep. But Trump reminds me of the vulgar gold, like the exoteric alchemist mm-hmm. that was trying to create fool's gold. Or they actually thought that you could make like that. Well, yeah. So, yeah. so <laughs> what about Trump's like incantations? Like when he calls people names, lying Ted. 
crooked Hillary. So what are those? That's just like that, that's terms? like if you had a, a, a crude version of the Philosopher's Stone, mm-hmm. it could be something that could just I don't know. That's you know, fucked up. That would be NLP. NLP. Try again later. 
Oh no, it'll happen. <laughs> Trust me on that. It'll show up in some weird accident or something that you didn't see coming. <laughs> so Jan Martell and Phil Ford talk about that. I think you would love Weird Studies podcast. Uh-huh. They yeah. they talk about that with um, doing Jeff like, Martell. Yeah, yeah, okay. Doing magical works. And he said, like, seems really cool. I, I haven't interacted yet or heard your. Oh he yeah, said, it seems like a really nice guy. He said that he said that he, basically he tried magic just to see, uh-huh. you know, just for shits. Basically, like right. he said, this story is so nuts. He said he asked for a large sum of money in his magical ritual, and then he got like it probably a, showed up. Right? Well, he got like a refund to the, like for like ten bucks or something, but the check in the memo line said. The sum in like really unusually bizarrely large lettering, you know, that took up like a huge, and he kept it because it was a large sum of money. And he, was like, he was like, "This shit is too weird. I'm out." Like, oh man, that was great. That was really He's good. Like, you got to be careful. You got to be careful when you're doing oh, this man, shit. That's, that's the clown playing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. That was awesome. The setup was great. The punchline was great. It was like, dude, you should be like a stand-up comedian. A comedian of ideas. You know, I remember when uh, Baudrillard died and somebody reviewed him as a comedian of ideas to try to delegitimize him. I'm like, at that point, well, that's actually what I want to be, right? Yeah. So, so but now like, I kind of like the yeah, idea. Yeah, like, what if I'm like... Duncan Trussell or Joe Rogan by just mm-hmm. interview ideas, but rather than people, and that's kind of what you do for your day. Yeah, I so take I, comedy seriously. Yeah, you're a dead philosopher project. You're interviewing the ideas. I, <laughs> <laughs> How could you not laugh at that joke? Yeah, that so you, you are. The I take comedy the, seriously. Wait, are you, are you are you talking about how you're the comedian of through the medium that you've yeah. been interviewing, like Rudolf Steiner? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Talk more about that because that's oh, the, fascinating. Uh, I mean, yeah, okay. speaking, speaking of respect to the crazy old man, like yeah. I've never. I, <laughs> I told. I told Notice my, that now I am. Yeah, yeah you're crazy. No, 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 no. It's okay. You're allowed well, to finish. finish. But well, the thing about it is, I like that. Well, now hold on. Yeah. Well, I'm going to finish. Yes, John, you're well, I love it. You're the old child. But yeah. No. I'm, what I said to my buddy. I'm down with what all I said of to that. my friend uh, is that I've never. The actual statement was speaking of crazy respect to crazy old men. Um, I told my friend that I've never seen. Hey, I'm only 49. Come on. Wait, 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 wait. You're assuming. I said. I said, I've never seen you pay more respect to anyone than the ghost of Rudolf Steiner. That's why I love, I love Steiner. Steiner. <laughs> I mean, the dude. So it was, it was, oh, he's he's, he was so good. Yeah. You know, it was funny because when I, when I studied Steiner, I was living in San Francisco, and I was managing a bookstore, and I was just reading Steiner, and I decided it was so good. It, you know, it took a moment to, like, figure out how to get into him. Because, like, Robert McDermott's uh, Essential Steiner was terrible. You know, it's a, it's a bad book. And I was like, this is not working. I don't see why. Why is Thompson like this? But then I started reading the lecture cycles. And once I got into those, I became like a Steiner addict. And that was all I read literally for one entire year. Steiner, 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 Steiner. For the whole year. And uh, I, I was an addict. But... Yeah, yeah, that's right. One of his blackboard drawings. Yeah, I came home on the cover of Michael Kamen's book *Absence*. Anyway, go on. No, that was my point. It was just so. So you. So I watched this. So you. It's like a drug, and he is like a drug when you're reading him. um, It's kind of like listening to like Terrence McKenna. Yeah, he just has a talent for 
It's really like smooth and effortless. And it like, trances you into well, this like hyperverse. You know? Saturn might be this being, and Mars is this other being. And it's, the guy was such a master. Yeah. Yeah, he was the best. He's probably my, one of my all-time favorite. He's definitely my favorite mystic of all time. So do you So the thing that I couldn't wrap my head around though was that like the way that you managed in that conversation to completely bracket everything and just take it total face value. You know, like you kind of put off the empirical concern yeah. and you didn't get into like you know, oh so Rudolf Steiner channeled through my my media. Who is who's your friend again the media? Oh, Shorty Campbell. Shorty yeah, Campbell. okay, so I should tell the story that yeah, um, after my mother died, she died last year, I had been flirting with the idea for a long time of contacting a medium. I just wasn't sure who, which medium to contact or anything like that. So I discovered Bob Olson's website, his YouTube channel, where the guy was um, a former private detective, uh, an atheist, and then his dad died. And he was like, I wonder if there's like some way that I could contact him. And he did indeed, after experimenting with different mediums, he did indeed find a medium that could contact his father, and he held this conversation with him. He's like, this shit works. It's real. It's actual. Um, so then he created this website where he has uh, all the mediums on that website are all reputable because he's, he just checked them all, and, and it's totally reputable. So I found a medium on there. So there's a directory. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's called uh, like something like a best psychic mediums, I think. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's generic. The guy's yeah. a private detective. Let's cut him some slack. But there's, but, no, apparently they have some uh, like a process of accreditation. Right. So yeah, it's, well, it's Amazon reviews. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, a lot of them are it's, tested it's by Bob himself. Okay. And if he tests one of these mediums, he puts like a gold star. So these are the ones he's. Tested, okay. but the other ones are ones that he's heard good things about. You can go to these people and get results. You know, they're not charlatans. So he convinced me. I don't know. I watched enough of his videos that, that he convinced me. So then, uh, after my mother died, I, I uh, my brother and I found a medium that could channel her, and it was I was one hundred percent convinced it was her. I, it, she knew all these things. You know, that the medium couldn't have possibly have known. And so once we did that and it was successful, I started thinking, I wonder if it would be like possible to interview Oswald Spengler, because he's like my all-time favorite. And I was like, is there some way that we could like dial him up? So I asked uh, the medium, and she was like, I can't do that shit. I was like, why? She was like, no, this first medium had channeled my mother. Um, and she was like, I can't go and get a celebrity unless I have some at some point some physical connection with that celebrity um, so she couldn't she didn't, didn't have that ability so I put it out there um, that uh, I went to the website of Eliza Meadows you know and I went to her website and I asked her I said would you like me willing to like channel Joseph Campbell have, have your son you know because her son committed suicide and died he went to the other side he contacted her she was also an atheist uh, which is why it was so difficult for him to contact her, because uh, he was appearing to the other relatives first in their dreams and stuff. Ooh, and and one time he just shows up in the living room of her brother, and her brother calls her, and he's like, you know what, I, I, your son is contacting me. I think you should like consider the possibility that maybe there is an afterlife, and, this, and he's, trying, he's on the other side trying to get you. And then so one night she was sleeping, and then she saw him sitting at the, on the edge of her bed, and he was, like, jumping back and forth. And he's like, you can see me. <laughs> Mom, you can see me. And she was like, 
she was like, oh my God. You know, so it was this huge experience for her. Um, so then Eric has this interesting ability where he can go get any celebrity that you want. And so I went to their website and I was watching them interview what president? Jesus Christ, Adolf Hitler, Howard Hughes. They just did a really interesting one with Stephen Hawking. That was cool. Because you know uh, that Hawk, what Hawking said in that interview. It, 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 let's assume it is Hawking, right? You know, it's a little, it's a little crazy. This is what I mean by bracketing. <laughs> that you're really yeah. good at sketching the shit at yeah. value. Yeah, it, but I always bracket. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah. So, I, so Hawking said what? He goes, um, in a past life, I was a Roman emperor. <laughs> he goes, I, yeah, I was an emperor, and I got everything I wanted, and I was really mean to people. And I told people, you know, I, he was apparently one of the cruel Roman emperors. Mm. And he's like, that's why I reincarnated this time as this person who can't do any harm to anyone. He was you neutral. Know, his Holy whole body neutralized because now he's in a, the exact opposite position where the, the Roman emperor could hurt anyone he wanted. But in this incarnation with ALS, he couldn't hurt anyone. And all, so all that was left to him was his mind. He's like, that's why I did it. Because I had access... To my mind, in a way that probably wouldn't have been possible if I'd had a control over my body, and uh, I just loved it. I, I thought it was a wow. great interview. I was convinced it was him. Wow, um, that's, that reminds me of Count of Monte Cristo, mm-hmm. where when the main character asked uh, the Abbe Freya, he said, uh, "Well, if I was out of this jail, maybe I couldn't have figured out all this stuff." Essentially. Mm-hmm. That that theme of confinement mm-hmm. runs throughout everything, including the myth of Merlin, yes. you know, and, and right. Arthur. This whole thing about you know being thrown in jail, etc. Um, it's it's missing from the Christic, like the mainstream Christic narrative, because all of his teenage years are missing. Yeah, and yeah. so you don't yeah. you don't see him go into the fucking tree. I know what did he mom. do during those years? He went to India. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah. That's like yeah, I mean, at least I don't know that for I don't know that well enough to shout it like I just did, mm-hmm. frankly. But like, it's cool to think of, though. But like, it is. I mean, all signs point to yes. If there was any kind of historical mm-hmm. figure at all. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. then yeah, I agree. There, there, do, there does seem to be enough cultural interchange right. between those two regions that the story itself mm-hmm. traveled back and forth yep. enough yep. that it became a part of the story at the very minimum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, like, okay, so this is this is uh, the probably the most like personal thing I've ever said on this show, and it's just been like so like this is the conversation for it because um, I, I love you, listeners, and. I don't know. A lot of you, I don't know. But uh, at this point, if you're listening this far, then you really care. So here we go. Um, 11 years ago, uh, or so, 12 years ago, I had a series of mushroom trips outside Lawrence, Kansas at Clinton Lake, where my friends and I would go hiking in the woods and, like, go down to the water and, like, hang out by the water. And hang, you know, and I'd, I'd been doing that for four years at that point. You know, a couple times a year. And... Then, you know, like the spring, you're like, yeah, we could do a spring trip and a fall trip or whatever. Enough to have seen some really weird shit and have been able to, like, what I call stay on my perch. Like, to be able to remain rational in the face of utter hallucinogenic nonsense. So Robert Hansen, Wilson can do. Yeah. He was a cowboy too. That, that this, <laughs> that, you, that, like, like, I remember one time in particular that uh, my friends and I, and I uh, a couple years before, had gotten ourselves into this spot that was like all spiky trees, like acacia trees, 
and spider webs. And we were tripping so hard that all we could see were like hexagons everywhere. My friends and I were like, how do we get out of this little like glen here? And I was like, wait a minute. Uh, follow the hexagons because the angle of the thorn to the branch and all of the the spider web stuff mm-hmm. is octagonal. Like that's the yeah. That's like right. it's yeah. forty five instead of the sixty follow. degree angle. You just got to follow the sixty so that degree angle. Got to these thread yeah. for you to get out of it. So so yeah. So we followed the hexagons. and got out. So like I'm not a total dipshit. Like okay, when I tell this story and I tell that story in order to tell this next story, which is about how in I I was like. A, fairly fucking scientific and yet by that point and in this place that I was very familiar with and comfortable with and right, because you're, you came out of paleontology right yeah. your background was in hardcore science well I mean you know dealing with yeah. concrete although I think although to be fair I don't think lab and experimental science was ever like my strength and I think you know a lot of this was more about the mystical experience of like uh, uh, looking you know prospecting for fossils out in the, the badlands you know right. like that what it does to to really be inhabiting a landscape of that age and to be like immersed in that kind of a sense of depth, and then to have, to be like to revelation to find things, which again going back to Bakker is I think the point is that he's like a, de- a desert revelatory mystic, yeah. you know that like he never really like made that. sense he I never like really that. made sense <laughs> in the institution, yeah. you know, and he's over his life he's bounced around from school to school and museum to museum. And, you know, for a while didn't even have a museum of his own. He just had a society. That's like when uh-huh. I was working with him. Uh-huh. Um, so but, he wasn't a, uh, a celebrity at that point? No, he was. Oh, he, he already he was. was. But he just wasn't affiliated anymore okay. with the uh, University of Colorado. Gotcha. Um, but at any rate, the the point was that in 2007 I had four mushroom trips. The four I had that year that um, I saw this shit just you know you, this whole time this conversation there's been this paused YouTube video Terrence McKenna yeah. the definitive UFO tape <laughs> which, which shows both saucers and cigar what are the odds and cigar shaped UFOs and a, uh, a number of cross like flying glowing yeah. crucifixes uh, this is my contribution <laughs> yeah Michael was entertaining I was us trying to do tarot, tarot reading yeah. well, we're up a great time he was like check out this McKenna video hilariously the uh, YouTube search bar says Deus Ex Machina. Actually, it says Deus. But anyway, I thought you were going to read like one of my porn files. I was like, oh shit, now I've got to cover this <laughs> <laughs> All right, here I'm going to roll at the um, <laughs> the point is the the you can tell I watch com- I watch comedy you know it's <laughs> not overlooked yeah no, go ahead. this year I saw four uh, basically like UFO sightings but I would wait are you serious yeah I couldn't you call them UFOs yeah, you can't just them. drop them <laughs> well, that, casually you gotta prepare us for this no no no, no, no. you saw okay. four UFOs let us finish the story all four I want to see a UFO all, I've never all seen four of these these yeah. trips took place over the year 2006 to 2007 right. they all happened at the water uh, like at the lake uh-huh. in Lawrence Kansas yeah. Uh, at Clinton Lake, which I, I later, I found out after the first one, actually does have some kind of rumors of UFO activity, although it's not well documented, and some other people had seen some stuff out there in the years prior, right. and the, but these things were not like what I, they're not what I what I had ordinarily heard of described as UFOs, they were uh, like clear, luminous objects, like they're, they're transparent 
disturbances in space with like certain colored lights at certain parts of them. And so they look and more than anything like like the predator crossed with like a bioluminescent fish right, flying right. around in the sky. Right. Okay. Oh, I love that. So bioluminescent. There's an early fish. ufologist that thought UFOs were organic beings that we don't understand. Yeah. And they are kind of bioluminescent, aren't they? That is what yeah, they are. And so some of them, some of them, like the first, the first night I had just started watching. The night before, I had just seen the two-hour press conference uh, video of the disclosure, con- the disclosure project, which is uh, you know John. Uh, Stephen Greer's yeah. whole thing, where he's trying, he's got this like armada of former military scientists and I was talking about the disclosure project. Yeah, yeah, nuclear technicians, all these these folks who uh, you know had top secret clearance, and we sort of tacitly trust on a day to day basis with our lives, coming forward and saying I was directly involved in the cover up. We actually live in a huge ecosystem of intelligences. You know, we have all these different relationships to them. And then the next day, my friends and I went tripping at the lake, and suddenly, this fucking thing, you know, and it's like, I was primed to see it. I fully, completely accepted I was primed to see it. Why, well, had you, because you, of, because you weren't of the, sober? No, I was, I was, I was on mushrooms, but the point oh, was... I'm sorry. Like, you were okay. primed to see it. I mean, that's... I was primed to see it that's in the trip. Experience, right. you know, I was primed to see it by having watched the Disclosure right. Conference okay. Okay. the night before. But that doesn't mean it wasn't real, too. In right. Some way. Also, you know what I mean? And in yeah. fact, it happened right after I said... Because um, I was sitting with my girlfriend down at the water, and there was this. My, we were there on a double date with my friend and his girlfriend, and he was an aerospace engineering student and, who had built all of his own reprodu- reproductions of Jimi Hendrix's pedals. Like he was this brilliant electrical engineer. Dude, did you make that? Oh, I probably just incriminated you. That in purple pedal eleven years but, ago. But he sold them at like the, there was that one Jimi Hendrix Watt pedal. You but, but not that, that not oh, that. Okay. But like he made. I thought all computer geeks were into psychedelics. <laughs> but at any rate, the at any rate the um, the point was we were sitting there down there by the water at the at the bottom at the of this I mean on this jetty that had this. Uh, and we were like opposite the dam on this reservoir, and there was like a plug in this jetty uh, that went. You could tell it like led to like a sewer system or something that was under the water because you could hear things down there, even though right. the water level was here. And I, at one time, I, another night, a different year, uh, I had heard something even walking around down there, and it creeped the shit wow. out of us. Uh, so <laughs> we this this place we knew was kind of weird. We gotta go off here, and there was a building there in this field. Is a meadow at the end of a like a service uh, access road, yeah. and there's a there's a building there that uh, had like a power co- cable coming out of the building, but then ending where just like without going anywhere. And my buddy, who's this engineer, was like, "That makes no sense at all." And then so he and I both came up with this thing that it, the lake was actually being used to dampen some sort of electric. We were just bullshitting ourselves, you know. We were like, "Oh, it's being used to like." You guys were tripping at the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. We're like, "Oh, the lake must be used to uh, to like mediate some sort of uh, wireless transfer of electricity into orbit to be picked up by one of these experimental beam powered." <laughs> Propulsionless VTOL plasma beings. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, well, and then, and then, like, and then, right as I was like, yeah, in fact, if you trace from the lake to this plug and then up the hill, the road to this building and then to the co- the power cord that goes nowhere, then there should be a spaceship right there. And then, like, <laughs> you deduced it. One minute later, we're walking up the hill and exactly where I had pointed, this thing flies over the ridge. Oh, man. And, that's called evocation. I know, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and I ran after it. I actually, I do tell this. I told 
a part of this story when I was on Eric Davis' show. Oh. Um, the two, I have a 2011 episode Technosis. of Expanding Minds. Yeah. Right? I talk Very about good. how I when, this, when this UFO appeared to me the first time, I thought it was out there in a simple way, and I ran after it to try and get a better look. And it flew behind a tree, but then I could see it in front of the tree, like it wasn't behind the tree. It's a good spot, dude. And I knew that it was in that that I was it, you but that I was, them. but that I was, I was missing the point. That I was like being like sort of tested. That's what McKenna and Vallee would say. They're testing your consciousness. They're like, they're like Zen koans. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, exactly. And it, yeah, and it was basically, it was basically, can, koan. it was like, yeah. can you figure this That's out? Cool. Yeah, I'm gonna steal that visual koans. <laughs> so, so UFOs are visual koans. Yeah, UFO experience is great. Koan. So, just so what for what this is worth, Sufjan <laughs> Stevens knows this. While we're talking about UFOs and crosses, sweet this. Sufjan <laughs> Stevens knows this because he has the song uh, about the the uh, concerning the UFO sighting outside of blah 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 Illinois. It's, it's yeah. part of his yeah. his Chicago the album with Chicago like Illinois. Uh, and it's that was a whole bunch of problems. That that song, which by the way has Chicago. no co- has no like consistent meter underneath it, what, and uh, Chicago. Shows. No, uh, the song concerning the UFO sighting. Oh, I'm sure. Okay. It has it has it's like on some weird eleven thirteen beat or something. Gotcha. So you never get settled into the beat. Right. And it's he says you know came the revenant, and he mm. recognizes the UFO as as a revenant. In this song, and it's like it's just basically he basically says like the UFO is like this Christic appearance, you know, like a descent yeah. into you know it's an illusion. Well, they're mythology machines. That's it's like the deepest are. song I've ever heard for the record. Mythology yeah. machines. Well, what, what, whatever the yeah. UFO phenomenon occurs, it creates new myths. It creates new gods. I mean, that's mm-hmm. what it does. It's some mm-hmm. sort of machine that you know interjects a, that component into, into into a civilization. I mean, that's happening now. Yeah. Okay, why, so that's, why that's is part this, one. Why is this happening? <laughs> I mean, dude, he's got his narrative. I showed them. Yeah. Tucker Carlson is like this Fox News guy. You know, you know Fox News. Like, who doesn't know Fox News, right? <laughs> I showed them. Never heard last of night, June eighth. Mm-hmm. He just did a thing, like, and he interviewed Nick Pope from the UK Ministry of Defense. And he, this is the first, one of the first times that a reporter in, in this age has taken the UFO subject seriously, because they they've been. There's been a policy of denial and ridicule about the UFO phenomena since the 1950s. And so we just watched this thing that ha- that aired last night uh, with Tucker Carlson interviewing, uh, was Nick Pope, uh, yeah. UK yeah, Ministry of Defense, right. talking about this UFO video they had. And this is a real phenomenon. These are objects. We don't know who's making them. They're, they're technological crap that's beyond the capabilities that we have and that any other you know country has. And, and, it's, and Tucker Carlson was like, well, what do you mean by that? Or how does that possible? Are they aliens? Like what? And he's like, well, you know, the governments don't want to speculate that far, but there's definitely objects that human beings aren't making that are flying around in our skies. And it's like, okay, well, we're going to cut to a commercial break now. I hope we have you on again. It's like, <laughs> great. And you now it's something that's like completely the most different. monumental idea of all time. But it's like yeah. this, this, this <laughs> the end of an, it's an end of, an, of a new show. I mean. But that's the whole thing about like that's the whole thing about the UFO phenomenon. Yeah, I thought it, it was interesting. It can never be in the yeah. center of any kind of discourse. It, it it disintegrates centers because it's meant to be the imaginary of a of a, of a people. Like right. it's meant to be in the periphery. And as soon as you get it in the center, it will. Whatever our next it's mythology Mercurius. is, is, is going to involve 
extraterrestrial. This is what Jung and the alchemists I mean, would that's call be part Mercurius. Of the global planetary mythos that will eventually well, emerge. It's happening now. So we're watching it. Yeah. I mean, it's it's also it's also typical. It's the rule rather than the exception in human history. Yeah. Like you yeah. know the the yeah. Lakota's star nations. Yeah. You know that that shit is. Uh, Fairly par for the course among human beings. Right. And I think not the Western culture, culture, though. No, culture, but we but. have to have these beings into one form that can convince us that there's more beyond this. Like those right. were, they had beings all over the place. Right. They accepted them. But, it was, us, it's, but it, it, one of the best things that come out of the first podcast recording I did with you, John, was when you were talking about what comes next, and you were talking. Oh, yeah. You were talking about the the reemergence of a polar, like a certain polar shamanic civilization. Yeah, and I think that that's that's really key because what does circumpolar mean? Well, like that you know, like it used to be the you know, like Siberian shamanism and like Northern Canadian, and that there were right. these you know that these these animals, the wolf, the reindeer, right, the, right, right. the grizzly, these are things that live all the all the way around. Oh, you know, and. And now it's outer space. Well, no, now it's it, now the the we've the ice age ended, the land bridge receded. It's underwater. All the temp, the old temples, yeah. you know, pre uh, comet impact, circa thirteen thousand years ago, offshore on the continental shelves are so you underwater. In the comet impact, I do. I totally do. That was I, that was I will, the dinosaurs. You mean? No, 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 no. no, no. That's that's a whole separate thing. You're talking um, about later on. I'm talking that. about there's there's the uh, you know. Um, Graham Hancock. Randall what does Carlson. Michael Garfield think of Graham Hancock? I, you know, he's a journalist and he's a firebrand. <laughs> okay, about those ideas though, about these earlier civilizations. Well, so and yeah, Sphinx so being really old. But so, John Ebert doesn't think the Sphinx is. Uh, he doesn't agree with that no, research. No, no. Well, I mean, whatever the case may be, we have all of these offshore temples that are under like 200, 300 foot column water. Okay, and I'm not, you know, like much like Graham Hancock claims to be, I'm actually not an expert in that shit. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I, I, I cover it as best I can. But you can still form an opinion. Yeah, and my opinion my opinion is that we had a, a global um, seafaring civilization. Most of it was wiped out by the, like, a rapid glacial melt. Mm. I think his, his hypothesis that we... Uh, had like survivors that went around rebooting civilization, uh, uh, right. to, but not to not to this not as so Steiner much. Talks well, not so much to the survivors. Uh, and, uh, not this, not so much to the people that like lived in the cities and moved in, but interestingly, to this, the people that had remained hunters and gatherers and were living further inland. Yeah, and were like being. That this is the thing is that that we think agriculture like evolved at this specific time, and we have this history of like. Human, like really healthy human beings, suddenly taking a hit, and like the life expectancy and the nutritional density that we observe in the skeletons and everything, it looks like agriculture really sucked for human beings for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because that's not us originally discovering agriculture in any kind of natural way. That's indigenous agriculture, which is basically like working in wild spaces, it's like wild crafting. Uh-huh. You know, the aboriginals and like. Of Australia, you know, they actually cultivated that land for for you know thirty thousand years or What's more. What's the word? Wild crafting. Wild crafting, where you're not you're not irrigating, um, but you might be like creating berms and things so as to create like natural irrigation. What about love crafting? 
Okay, sorry. Yeah, exactly. That's nerd, where, that's, nerd that's, joke. that's where you're only mentally aware of the hyper object, but you're not actually able to instantiate it through your like comprehension of whole systems. But you were on practice. something though before um, before before this whole interlude. And yeah. So at any rate, I think you know my 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 uninformed, my uninformed opinion. Wait, did that, you finish the cycle? No, I absolutely no. Right. I got part one of four. Oh, okay, <laughs> that was only the first. Okay. Yeah. So anyway. Um, but but like I don't want to I want to jump too too far. The, the, we can do this gracefully. So yeah, my my you know uneducated opinion is that I don't think that we need uh, aliens at any point in human history in order to explain anything. Yeah, but, I agree. I mean, but I, I do yeah. think that there have been encounters between human beings and extraterrestrials through hyperspace, and that we they some of them have been. Made record. That's what our talks ideas that these shamanistic states, those hallucinations are actually beings. Yeah. So I mean, in a sense, you can say you can't explain human history without aliens. But in another sense, what I'm saying is it's not like apes were going nowhere and then they were like bred with pigs and genetically modified by some like you know. Oh, like, Samaritan. I mean, that's all just like yeah. bollocks, mm. straight fucking nonsense. Stitchens. Uh, yeah, and, and I, yeah, the, like the you know William Thompson's uh, direct attack on. on I read Stitchin. a few of his books. The funny thing about Stitchin was that uh, he was actually really erudite. Uh, uh, he was translating all these Sumerian texts himself. Mm-hmm. So he taught himself the language. And there's not many people who. Do that. That would have been a good question for Stevenson. Yeah. Does he like Stitchin? What does he think of Stitchin? And he's really erudite. When you read him, you know, you can't take it seriously. Like you're saying that civilization was founded by extraterrestrials. I mean, no, you you can't. And then he's seeing spaceships and some of the works of art, you know. But at the same time, but on the other hand, you learn a lot of cool details. The fucking image absolutely can enter our consciousness without the thing appearing. And I do yeah. think yeah. I do oh, think fuck, that, yeah, dude, yeah, I, I do think that, that we can be yeah, drawn right. forward through history by the like this mm-hmm. hanging carrot. That's why I use the tarot, because these images are cross sections from all kinds of different times and places. All I mean, it's like the Hyperion contest. You know, Dan Simmons is saying about this. There's like temples that travel backwards in time, and there's this whole thing of that's the, 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 the Mobius strip, that's you know, the creating itself. Well, like, there's, there's the book. Well, we're going there. Why not? I mean, we're, we're there, and we're almost there. Is there anywhere we're not going we, we in this conversation? We're going to have to do a video. We're going to have to do a, a, do a Michael existence. Garfield's tarot. Existence. We're going to film that. We're going to do Michael Garfield's tarot, and John Ebert is going to explain. You get four really smart people in a room. Right. I mean, what's going to happen? Well, Hugh is going to relate the tarot to finance. We're, like, creating an intellectual black hole. It's like the tarot, which is in terms of the... A singularity event. All right, go on. I think you know we are clearly within a singularity because because this does lead gr- real gracefully into the into the act two, which is that um, if we're talking about there being a you know like again Timothy Morton does talks about there being no present and he's taking a really weird radical uh, perspective I think just to be contrarian um, but he he's you know he says it's only past and future because it's only the influence of these hyper objects and the, you know our consciousness is just the nexus of these inner objective causal relationships, like and therefore, at the end of time. right, and therefore we're not really like, yeah, we're just a handshake, which is actually what I saw in my first EMT trip. Was that mm-hmm. the present was 
was selected from an in, like a sexual relationship between one possible past and one so, possible future. So we're sexual, 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 or sexual, sexual, sexual. Okay. Well, yeah. in a sense that like there that's, were many possible oh, yeah, pasts right. and many possible futures, but that they yeah, were so like they were <coughs> resonating and like the other. Well, that's a transaction when you transfer the data from one party to the other. When when you take these different possible universes as maybe nodes in like some sort of economic system. Therefore, I am Bitcoin. Yeah. You know. Yeah, in that sense. But so, but so there's this. Hmm. While we're in that theme, do you have a lot of investments in Bitcoin? There's a lot of Bitcoin. A lot of investments in Bitcoin. No, but I like I, I have invested a lot of conversation <laughs> in Bitcoin. You know, because I think it's fascinating. And and so this um, this thing about uh, everything creating everything else. You know, if you want to view it sort of as the photograph of negative of you know there being nothing except the intersection of you know forces that. There is uh, this book called "Who Built the Moon." Oh, I love that book. Man. I got that for my brother for his birthday. So you read it, and his, bro- his birthday is actually today, and I got that as a gift for him. No kidding. Maybe not. Maybe that's not a synchronicity. I'm just looking for meaning here. But no, no you bought yeah. you you bought that. Who for built you? the moon for my brother? Yeah, because he yeah. likes that kind of stuff. You know, and that's the like, birthday. That's a, yeah, today, today is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. and he just had a really. Uh, uh, intense surgery. He, he had cancer in his knee. He had tumor. Well, actually, it wasn't cancer. It was a tumor. He, anyway, it doesn't matter. So, He's a great guy. So, what, you read that book, yeah? I mean, uh, yeah, I, I guess I did. Yeah, I did read it. So, they, you can attest to the fact that they have all of this sort of... The moon is very mysterious. It looks like it was built. I mean, there's lots of aesthetic qualities to the moon that shouldn't exist if it was just captured by the gravitational field of the Earth. It looks like it was manufactured, and there's a variety of reasons that the moon would be manufactured to make life possible on the Earth. So it's tricky, man. So I don't know. Maybe that's what this news is about Mars. There's life on, on Mars, and maybe we're going to discover that. Now I'm going way too far. Interrupt well, me. So, so they, they, do, they give all this weird, compelling, uncanny shit. It's all about numbers and ratios. You know, as you said earlier, like you said, you said you, I don't know if that was a Freudian slip or not, but at the very beginning of this conversation, you were talking about the signal to noise ratio, and you said signal to noise ratio. I did. I was like, I was like thinking about <laughs> yeah, I caught it too, and I was like, what is signal Rachel? Rachel, because we're talking about narrative collapse. Rachel, rhymes. How is it? What does she have in common? Them? I'm kind of yeah, I gotta put that in. Well, just, her eyes were green. I don't know. Oh, like, yeah, I, I could, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, gonna yeah. dig into it. Point yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah. So, so um, okay. at any rate, this this notion that the moon seems perfectly placed in order to facilitate it, the emergence of life and consciousness on this planet, and yes, right. also it's bizarrely perfectly. Proportioned relative to Earth, such that it's uncanny, dude. Such that the and this is like if you're into Westworld and you're like, wow, how, like if you saw like how uh, Robert Ford in that show sets up this elaborate mousetrap kind of a thing, and it's just you know he's really playing every single character, human or and host alike, and it's just this a grand operatic flourish. Then you get like a million times more out of this whole shit when you when you consider that the moon generated the tidal forces that led to the mixing of elements in intertidal pools that led intertidal hot pools that led to earth to life and that it led to the tidal forces that led to organisms developing limbs with feet so that they could cling to rocks and tidal zones and emerge from the water and get on the land and all of these moments these these sort of important moments in the history of life are regulated you know by the moon 
and its relative distance to the Earth at any given time, and it was closer back in the day, which I personally wonder whether that has to do with the fact that, you know, that other uh, creatures, that creatures could have been so large. You know, like we talk about there being a, a like more the carboniferous. That's like more oxygen yeah, in the atmosphere. atmosphere. Carboniferous. Yeah. But the, the records the, don't the scorpions actually... were like the size of dogs and the, the dragonflies were like dinosaurs. Yeah, I mean if you look at the tarot card of the moon I love the carboniferous. It's, it's a big moon just and it's a lobster yeah. coming out of the sea. I love it. It's wild. It's, a, like, it's like evolution was just having a ball. It's like how big can we make this dragonfly? You know? Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's how they invented Pokemon. Right. <laughs> so, dude, a lot of Pokemon are actually like Cambrian explosion, like what WTF, mate? So, and this is good because we're getting we're, we're dovetailing real neatly into part two here because the whole point was that they were basically saying that all this conveniently wonderful Goldilocks history, and then we end up at a part where the yeah, it's my it looks like Silver Surfer though, doesn't it? The Magus. The Magus card looks Prolistar. like the Marvel character yes. Silver Surfer. Yeah, Hermes. I thought about that. Oh, and it is Hermes, but yeah. this is before Silver Surfer existed. But yeah, Silver Surfer is totally written by a. It is adept. Oh, an adept of Crowley? Uh, of magic? magic of some kind. Yeah, I forget. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's cool. the I magic. think I've heard Alan Moore talk about that. I think the Silver Surfer was oh, my yeah, favorite you're right. comic book character. Yeah. I mean, all time. we're talking again about the Chrome Praying Mantis back in the right. Yeah, he was the best. I just thought he was the coolest. Crowley has several magic. The only tarot deck that has like three magic magus magus cards or magic cards. Anyway, but so um, the the thing with the moon is that it ends up such that it is precisely one four hundredth the diameter of and one four hundredth the distance of the sun at exactly this moment in its decaying orbit, such that human beings on the surface of the planet, if present at all, would be like there to witness that perfect mm-hmm. eclipse mm-hmm. Yeah. that. At no point in the history of the planet has there ever been a total solar eclipse until the evolution of human consciousness. Right. And then it's gonna it's gonna separate just like it does in the background of Peter Gabriel's "Don't Give Up" music video. Yeah. Not the you know not to get sloppy with this, but I just rewatched that and noticed that they, there's this great thing where he and Kate Bush are turning, and as they turn, and then they get to the bridge, the most like potent emotional part of the song. The sun and the moon behind them that have been slowly approaching reach eclipse, and then the sun like keeps going, but the eclipse separates. Put them up. Ooh, yeah, the moon. Well, what's interesting is it's a very idiosyncratic. That looks nothing like the weight deck moon card. No, well, it, it still has a bug yeah. coming up from below. And there's a sort of oh, there is a bug coming from below. Capri yeah. is. And the gatekeepers on either side. Capri coming up out of the underworld. And that's in the weight deck. The Egyptian yeah, well, it's the, it's a cliff, and then a dog on either side. A dog and a wolf. And that's all in this car, too? Well, I mean... Well, Anubis, right. Anubis, Anubis is yep. in there, yeah. Oh, shit. Okay, so this is... Could also of, be Wepawet, though. I love how he inverts the, the traditional... Wepawet is a, okay. uh, one of the guides to the underworld, and it's a it's got a dog. And that's what that oh, looks okay. like. And that's actually... Look at that. It looks like a Yanni right there, right? Or, <coughs> yeah. No. So, so their whole thing with the moon was, who built it? Because this right. shit is bizarre. It's precisely uh, 20... 7.932% the size of Earth, like mm-hmm. the diameter, mm-hmm. and also it or orbits Earth in 27.932 days. Right. Like, right. excuse me, what? Like, that doesn't, that right. shit doesn't happen. I know. Nowhere else do we see anywhere in the cosmos, in all of our, like, extraordinary telescopic power, do we, do we see anything even remotely like this? Yeah. So what the hell is going on? 
And what does it have to do with the fact that our planet is the only planet that has life, which is also a thing that we don't seem to be observing anywhere else. And basically, their whole thing was, we come up with three options, and we don't like any of them. They're like, it could be God, we don't like that. It could be aliens. We don't like that because that just pushes the question back. I like both of those, though. It could be future human beings through like some sort of quantum shenanigans yeah. where they have to create a history in which they exist. Yeah. And I was like, I feel like you guys are so close. No. You're so close. because I And I was talking about this with my buddies. We had hiked down from Taos. We'd hiked down the canyon to Stagecoach Springs down yeah. the Rio Grande. Yeah. One beautiful night in uh, August 2014. And there was a, um, it was the, the, the Leonid meteor shower. It was the, the one in August. Uh, yeah. And. Sounds right. It might have been torrid. And, uh, anyway, uh, anyway it, it was a massive meteor shower. And that night I was talking about this and I said, I think that it's really all and none of those. I think that what it really is, is that as in Greg Egan's science fiction novel Distress when they figure out the theory of everything and it like loops back in time the perfect description and understanding creates the universe in which it exists it's like that it's like a Mobius strip yes that a perfect observation creates a perfectly recursive history in which it must the observation is explained yeah you know and that basically what, what has happened is that every single person who has ever looked up and seen a solar eclipse you know, has looked up and seen the moon, is basically voting in quantum hyperspace for that to timeline exist. to exist, and oh, has like, and yeah, that, I love that. Yeah, yeah, that we've basically created this history that we're like this channel yeah. of history that we're moving through by our like the retro voting. awareness of it. So that's, that's kind of like cryptocurrencies, right? You have the blockchain, you should <laughs> the blockchain to see if you see, see the moon or not. Yes, yes. And, and there's a Gnostic component to this, because Dan Larimer of EOS uh, yeah. and BitShares and Billy Buterin of Ethereum yeah. were having this debate on Medium about the limits of crypto-economic governance, and Vitalik is saying, we can design a system in which we can in- incentivize it such that all actors are, uh, that you're, you're going to guarantee good behavior, and Dan Larimer said, no, you can't. Because there's always another ecosystem behind it. There's always a bigger economy that creates a deep state, no matter what you do, and that you basically can only get, you know, you can only sort of hope that your players will act in favor of like doing the right thing, like two out of three times, and you can sort of guarantee it's going to work most of the time. But he's like, but ultimately, there's always a sort of gnostic demiurgic sort of. Thing hanging out behind it, you know, yeah, but you can't get, right. you can't factor it out, no. you know. And so I think that thing is the uh, the sort of like monstrous face of the omega point that we create observes itself and creates the history in which we're observing our own history, this weird, uncanny, perfect history that we can't comprehend. You know that we're looking. I mean that it's basically that it's all it's it's all happening. You know, and then it, we're just sort of at different points of it, you know, right. and yeah. and it's and it's coherent. It has like an internal integrity, you know, that it does actually have. There's like a, a, a supra narrative yeah. going on here, um, and so at any rate, the second time I went out there, this is all stuff I came up with years later. After the second time I went out in 2006, it was two weeks after that first time. The first time was a new moon, and the second time was a full moon. Right. And the second time, 
my friends, two two guys that had not been there with me the, the first time, and I'd known for years, and, you know, it's like take a bullet for you kind of friendships. Mm-hmm. I had told them, I was like, the last time I went out there, I saw a UFO. And actually, it wasn't the only one we saw. It was just at that point, later that night, when a UFO also, the first time, later that night, a UFO appeared, and all four of us saw it again. But everyone was so unsure of what they were seeing. Everyone was tripping so hard that it was mm-hmm. like, both of the women came home from that were like, I'm not saying shit about shit. Like, I'm not putting my finger, I'm not putting my chip down on any mm-hmm. part of that roulette table. That's very common with UFO experiences. Yeah. Some people have a traumatic response and they, yeah. they want to just well, deny it afterwards. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's risk, how you want to approach the risk. I think that's a lot of how we, that's basically our experience in life. It's how do you want to choose to, to be exposed to unknown risks. So, I went out with these two other guys that I, I, you know, on some level I felt like were maybe like prepared to see UFOs. And, um, well, you were tripping. <laughs> well, I was like, I mean, come on, you know, if you're going to go in there. Um, so, and, you know, but I was like, but here's the thing is that I can't, like, we can't assume anything about what the, each other are seeing. Mm-hmm. When so, can we do the Freeform Psilocybin podcast? <laughs> we'll get you guys in, in uh, we just, well, but free form we walk around in a place <laughs> broadcast live all, yeah we all right have, all wouldn't that be wild here's yeah. four guys tripping and this is what Dude, I their accounts are me, me, you. you're, 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 you're getting into some potentially okay. dangerous feedback loops oh, by yeah. live streaming okay. it <laughs> no, but like that, in, in that idea, no, we're not live. Four cams and mics on four four tripping people that you can stitch back together in a studio and like yeah. give people excerpts is one thing. Yeah, well, but then once, different, let, let, once, you have, once you have a live I mean, audience, then, you know, it's, it's, you're you're inviting the uncanny and okay. the weird shit in, and I'm very particular. Oh, I like that though. You know. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. The feedback from Warren, everybody. As somebody who has worn a, uh, a camera in a everybody. room full of tripping people, here, come, or here comes electronics. Yeah. Then, uh, me and John are really into this idea. James Joyce had you know, the main character Finnegan's Wake was HCE, which one of the acronyms that that could be is "Here comes every everyone." Oh yeah, yeah. And so me and John have this idea that with electronic, electronic and telematic. Civilization. Here comes everyone. You know, everyone has a comment on wow. a post, and yeah, so we're all right. dealing with HCE. All the time. Joyce was already living in the yeah. future when he wrote that. that. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. So we're always dealing with this HCE character, which is everyone at the same time. You know, but also not because her eyes were green. You know, I love and that. Like yeah. anything that the machine, that the singularity, like in right. in, in um, uh, Accelerando, like when human beings have sort of escaped from the Matryoshka brain. Uh, that's eaten the inner planets of the solar system and that we're living as refugees in the outer planets. Spoiled! Right. The singularity is shooting out historical and fictional characters as living humans. That's right. like, um, to Jeff them. Jeff and they're like, what yeah. the fuck is this? Like, they're like, are these, are we being treated as an infection and these people are, are like antibodies in a system that's like, we can't understand. You know, it's like, there's no other. I want to put an endorsement, uh, to Jeff. Jeff Noon, the author of Vert and Pollen, and I think that um, Michael Garfield and you should get together and have a conversation. Okay, yeah. <laughs> he wrote a book called Pollen, which is all about yeah. like um, people taking these like psychedelic compounds that tune them into like the um, like the agrarian body. You know what I mean? And all the like Greek myths are like these iconotypes in that space. It's really mm. interesting. Yeah. 
You can find them on, uh, on like uh, Twitter and stuff. Anyway. I'm entirely happy to let parts two, three, and four of this be the subject parts, yeah, right. of another conversation. Yeah. Well, because, but, yeah. but I will say that I, I think that the, the takeaway here is that with each deepening stage of my personal history of encounters with the UFO, and I think it, it would be, it would actually be cruel not to give people part two, mm-hmm. which is that Let's give them part two. Let's at each, them at each stage, there is an increasing intimacy and a depth of understanding that we're not dealing with the other here. Mm-hmm. Well, you that's know? like the Schubert's whole thing with the UFO communion, you know, mm-hmm. that like, these were like beings that we have to commune with, and he had this whole idea of like a sensual, even sexual relationship with these beings. It was, it was strange, oh. but but any Christian would say that's that's Satan, that's all old fashioned Satanism right there, you know. Right, because you're only allowed to have one kind of communion. Sleeping with the devil, you know the you know the rituals out and like the witches, like that. They would say that Streber was a witch, basically, you know. That's you know, well, right, because because they're Confucian about it, and they're saying you don't. Or it's like use well, they are cause, <laughs> about because it's you're you're just taking the communion away for you're participating in the ritual, but it's it's not it's it's. It, not a completely empty ritual. It's still capable of quite a bit, but it, it's based on something else. But at any rate, the the whole second thing about this was that I insisted on not leading the witnesses. So when lights started showing up in the sky that night, my friends and I were like, "Do you see that? Okay, yes. What do you see? You know?" And we were actually enacting this protocol, the uh, Close Encounter uh, the pro- Five. The Stephen Greer oh, talks about, yeah. where you actually sort of declare yourselves as a group to be a uh, planet planet ambassador, mm-hmm. you oh, know, wow, and, that's, and, that's number five, okay, and invite okay. in like a diplomatic interaction. So and so we did that. J. Allen Hynek came up with the uh, close encounter grades, right? So number yeah, I don't remember four would be like abduction, four, right? Four, no, see, yeah, the fourth kind is I guess abduction. The third kind would be contact with aliens, right? Close encounters with the first, first is kind. you see. Second is, yeah. I guess, communication. Maybe. Communication yeah. of some kind. Damn it! I'm gonna close. Have to... No, close encounters with the third kind was actual contact with the the occupants of the UFOs. Yeah, it was... close encounters with the fourth kind would be the abduction thing, and then close encounters with the fifth kind would be kind of what you're talking about. Which I think that's correct. You set yourself up as an ambassador. Right? I mean, I'm, I haven't heard that, before, but that sounds really yeah. Well, that's yeah. that was something specifically that I yeah. think was developed by right, the Disclosure I mean, Project. Because you kind of have to assume that if you're dealing with a transcendental intelligence, again, to go back to John C. Wright's sort of premise, you have to assume that, you know, that they're capable of being sort of invoked. I think so, yeah. I mean, I've seen that happen a lot of times, right? And that's even what Jacques Vallée thought. Jacques Vallée was trying to connect UFOs to hermeticism. Yeah, so in a way, it's like you're the prophet. You say, okay, I'm the prophet, now give me the message. Well, you know, uh, Jason Reza Drojani has a whole chapter in his book on uh, Prometheus and Atlas all about the UFO phenomena. And he thought that, like, that it was UFO phenomena that creates the Old Testament. Oh, shit. Yeah. There are actually, oh. there are actually uh, six types in his... Um, Dude, you should do... That would be a whole other podcast, a UFO podcast. Yeah, and first... So there's actually three non-close encounters that Heineck listed. Nocturnal lights, daylight discs, and a radar visual. And then first is visual sightings, so seen by the human eye. The first three are, you know, less than 500 feet away that show appreciable angular extension in considerable detail. Mm -hmm. This is according to Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. Close encounter is the second kind, a UFO... Heineck was uh, Valet's mentor. He was was an older scientist that... Valet came from France to... 
to study with. Them. Oh, I, yeah. Okay, yeah. here we go. Close encounters of the second kind. A UFO event in which a physical effect is alleged. This can be interference in the functioning of a vehicle or electronic device, animals reacting, physiological events such as paralysis or heat or discomfort in the witness, or some physical trace like impressions in the ground, scorched or otherwise affected vegetation or a chemical trace. That second night, every time we saw them, the birds in the marsh around us started making a lot of noise. It's part of the phenomenology. Yeah, right. I like that. Yeah. And what? And, and that night, there were so many more of them, and they were different kinds. And like I saw some of the ones that I oh, there was a there was a sound also like a boat propeller that the big ones seemed to make like they were like chugging through the sky. And I at this point, you know, I'd spent two weeks like studying, uh, like, aviation wing lighting and, you know, the, the silhouettes of different farm <laughs> planes and shit to make yeah. sure that I'm yeah. not just, you know, because it is, you know, you can have a lot of visual distortion under the influence right. of psilocybin, and it's, like, totally reasonable to, for me to maybe have mistaken something. But the only thing I could find that looked anything like what I saw that first night was in a, uh, a, a document from the 1700s. It was, like, a hand, like, it was a manuscript hand illustrations of like a clear thing with a big red light on front and a trail of white lights behind it. And I was like, bingo, that. yeah. bingo, that's yeah. the thing. Yeah. And that specifically that it flew in this sine wave pattern mm. and that it was accompanied by like a low humming, like a thrumming noise. A lot of UFOs do, uh, they do fall in a leaf uh, falling pattern. Mm. UFOs, they have this weird leaf, like well, the way a leaf falls. Mm. That's how a lot of UFOs are described as, as moving. So they're yeah, surfing. Possibly. Some of the ones that I saw that second night uh, had, it almost looked like you were looking into a a slide of pond water and all the little different critters swimming around in there. And like, some of them had two lights up front, so you could tell that they were rotating in whatever this invisible medium was. And they were like spinning and then drifting. This is kind of freaking me out. (laughs) What are we talking about? And those things in particular. UFOs. (laughs) And and those things in particular seemed to be like attracted to moonlight and like, the, I, those are ones. There's that some I, technology, man. That I did not see them the first night during the, yeah. the new moon. Um, they seemed like they were sort of gathering rather than traveling under their own power, like those that first class of thing. Yeah, yeah. It seemed like they were sort of absorbing moonlight and then using it to power themselves for a short distance. Some sort of beings, maybe. Yeah. So intense. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, we can end it there. Yeah. I mean, we can wrap this up. I don't need to like say it. any more about my UFO experience <laughs> now. That was good. But you know. I, mean, I think that was, was very, very entertaining. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for indulging me, yeah. guys. That was more that was than I usually talk. Dude, that uh, was great, man. Yeah, yeah that was really show. entertaining. But, you know. Wait, I do have one last thought on The truth is out there. Yeah. And I just forgot it. But not exclusively. It's also dancing in, in and out of us like a clown all the time. I love that, yeah. Right, <laughs> Don't start oh, with the clown again. This is what I was going to say. So, we, since we've all had these sort of, this, this UFO experience, <laughs> I think, I mean, I think that. The UFO thing is a shamanistic thing, so it's like we're all. I think we're all shamans, you know. That's why. That's why we're all coincidentally hanging out. I mean, and I think that whatever that phenomena is, it, it's initiating a new generation of people into yeah. something, you know, to the spiritual world, you know. So I like the term magicians. No, yeah, that's mm-hmm. my yeah. I mean, that's yeah. the term I like. Yeah, I'm, I'm into Crowley and stuff. So yeah, so I think it's I think it's uh, sort of less it's less fraught with potential misunderstanding. 
Is the mic off? Did we kill it? No, it's on. Oh, yeah. it's still gone. Okay. Yeah. So I still have to be careful what I say. <laughs> <laughs> Just I don't know. I've, I've seen you say some pretty crazy shit on Twitter. So. Yeah, I, know I have. I, I'm prone to fits of angst and. But no, but I mean, I just mean Iliad's, uh, you know, idea of shamanism. You know, all those because uh, if you look at Iliad's book and you study any abductees uh, scenario, it's the same phenomenology. Like, you know, any uh, shamanistic initiation has the same. It has the same phenomena that an, an alien abductee goes through. You know, the, the body being taken apart by strange beings and putting back together again with objects inside. Yeah. John actually talks a lot about this in some of his lectures. Uh, about to, about um, the connection between alien abduction and shamanism. Shamanism. Yeah, well, that was, yeah, when I was first thinking about it way back. When I did my first book, I was thinking that uh, there are so many similarities between, like, what shamans describe when they get captured by these ancestor beings and they take them and pull out their body parts and replace them with crystals or mm. some superior metal or something. Yeah, so they're, they're torn apart and rebuilt. And that's why they're invincible because they have this... It's like uh, the Wolverine character in the Marvel Universe has these shamanistic... Fuck, dude, they, they put metal inside of his body. And that's totally shamanistic. But he's also tortured. Yeah. Is it tortured? Yeah, yeah. no, it is. Well, yeah, but the shamanist... sacrifice. And the alien abduction phenomenon does sound a lot like that, you know, when they take them on board the ship and it's happening do in, stuff in, to in their new bodies new and add, like, metal implements. So the difference, the difference yeah. then is that we've graduated from the Close Encounters of the Fourth Kind, which are largely non-consensual, to close encounters of the fifth kind, which are in, actually invited, where the seduction is like uh, actually in, in, like initiated. But they were always by the human they being. were always invited by people who were doing magic, right? Magic was always about it, inviting these beings. And, well, right, but you know, but uh, these beings well, will sometimes catch you anyway. Yeah, so magic is all about a way of how you deal with unknown risks. So you got the unknown unknowns <laughs> and the known knowns and the unknown knowns and well, you know, the four options. Oh, yeah, actually, another time, another friend brought up something interesting. So so I was saying God is uh, basically our idea of the unknown unknown, right? But he said, no, it's actually the non- unknowable unknowable. <laughs> He's right. Yeah. That's correct. <laughs> well, the God, the God head. We don't know what the fuck that yeah, is. And, and our whole journey throughout life is how do we deal with all these unknown risks? Yeah. So that's actually, this is the spot. This is the spot to end it. Because I think from here, normally I like to end the show asking what what people kind of, uh, what message they want to convey to the future or possibly like what the best possible future they can imagine is. So in general, uh, I would love to hear each of you take a turn uh, saying something about, in light of all that we have said today, right. <laughs> in light of... You know uh, the the hyper modern uh, evaporation right. of culture into the digital, in light of the apparent persistent and eradicable non dual reality of the uh, hyper dimensional Harlequin as somehow like a a perma feature, even if we're not aware of it, um, even if uh, you know, in light of the fact that we may. We may be involved in a time-traveling conspiracy to create the moon, and in, in light of the fact that... that uh, we covered that, a lot of that shellfish. Yeah, yeah, we sure did. In, in light of the fact that... Donkey Kong? That, that, yeah, that the, 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 the babblefish might be a... Um, 
you know, might sort of lead to a reverse snow crash in which everyone's speaking their own language, and we all become sort of like uh, cryptographic public-private keys with, uh, like, brain implants that can communicate to each other. Um, what is the best, sort of like, what kind of best possible future do you envision given everything we know? Like, given everything we sort of accept as the case, you know, where, uh, where is, where is the, the, the most reasonable sort of, the intersection of like what you believe is actually possible Mm -hmm. and like the best thing you can imagine? Mm -hmm. Uh, so you want us to answer that question? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess I can answer that, but I'll say that's almost the wrong answer to ask. It's uh, it goes back to uh, Taleb's idea of uh, it's not about protecting the future, but about how you position yourself using heuristics so that you can experience the best future without risk of ruin. So, so rather than imagining like a static best future, it's really this flow. It's the you're living the doll. Use basically through this Wu Wei heuristic, where you don't actually have to know what to expect, but you just experience it, and you're actually pleasured by all these surprises, and just gotta make sure that you can calibrate the risks so that you don't have you don't die before you experience something interesting. Could it be? Okay. Don't die before you experience something interesting. Could you say that, that, that then that the best possible future you can imagine for our species is one in which we all are pleasured by surprise. Uh, yeah. So you're you're kind of reincarnating in this like multiplicity of possibilities. All right. What about you, Mike? So my th- my whole thing is that you know we we think in metaphors, you know. So these are called um, cognitive and or conceptual metaphors, and I think that language. You know, if you look at any language, you realize that there are these metaphor landscapes that a language um, describes, and they're not just figures of speech. Even a figure of speech is an image. You know what I'm saying? So I don't think these things are just um, ways of speaking. They're actual realities that we inhabit, and I think that part of what um, a poet does, let's say, you know, uh, is tunes in to some sort of force that invents new languages that actually is a, a modification of these conceptual metaphors. And, and, and it's all about adaptation. So we're trying to adapt these conceptual metaphors to survive in this contemporary age. You know, So the sort of hyper-modern thing for me is really about like some sort of transformation of language where we, we discover the right terms but it's not really about the right terms either, because there's no right or wrong. I'm just saying it's more in terms of metaphors, you know. So I'm I'm wanting us to be able to have a language that we can speak that actually gives us a sense of being and a sense of numinosity and and dwelling in this hyper modern landscape. So it's not this soulless, um, painful, empty experience that it is for a lot of us, because we went through this um, contemporary art exhibit at the site uh, museum yesterday and we all left feeling really disorientated which was kind of cool it was the effect of the artist and and he did a good job doing that but but it all left us really reminded of how much we've lost some connection to some deeper meaning that when we're all talking we feel that there's this deeper sense to life and that's not being captured in art right now and it's not being captured 
in the ways that a lot of us are actually speaking. And I actually think it's the poet's job to kind of rediscover what, you know, in a new way, what the, what those uh, language forms are, what those metaphors are. So um, for me, it's just about experimenting with new new metaphors and, and new ways of using language. And, uh, and I'll leave it at that. Hmm. So would you say that it's, in some sense, it's like the best... The, 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 the good future is a future in which the poets have done their job by yeah, helping yeah. us, I mean, in helping us uh, enjoy yeah. surprise. Well, the poet is the one who approaches the unknowns first, so he, he's exactly the one who basically right. is the canary in the coal mine when approaching these, I, I guess, intellectual risks. Yeah, well, I mean, this is like a Heideggerian idea, too, that like it's that, that language is not uh, informational. It's not supposed to signify something. Language is supposed to create an oral space, sound space that we inhabit and that, you know, brings things to life. And that, and that you know, that's why he liked um, Helderlin you know, so much, because he thought Helderlin was actually doing this for the, the in-between, he called it, between this modernity and whatever is after modernity, you know. And so I think that we're in a space like that right now, and, and we need poets, and we need people like like us who are describing this hypermodern thing, who can speak some sort of new language that can, um, you know, manifest the right kind of conceptual metaphors. And I don't want to use the word right. I, I'm, I'm upset that I keep using the word right. It's not about being right or wrong. It's just that it's it's metaphors that are complex enough to allow us to inhabit or to, in a Heideggerian sense, dwell in hypermodernity, you know, mm-hmm. and so um, and so that's kind of what I'm interested in as a poet, just with my language games yeah. and stuff like that. So anyway, yeah. So that kind of reminds me of my critique of the intellectual dark web. So there's more to the logos than just reason and debate. It's more about there's multiple ways of using it to uh, basically do risk management. That's what it is. It's a medium for risk management. That's the that's the logos, and when the poet or artist kind of paints this picture that doesn't look very rational, but that's actually part of the logos that you really need to navigate through chaos when there's too many unknown unknowns. That's the horizon that has to be, you know, collapsed into, you know, the... the uh, I sound like John right now. That's how John talks right now. There's a reason we're friends. I'm, I'm yeah. mimeticing, um, copying John. Right? <laughs> and that, that, uh, that selector... Mm-hmm. Is how Richard Doyle describes evolution. Mm-hmm. He says it's it's uh, a, a searching of the information space mm-hmm. for the greatest possible entropy. Yeah. And so you know that uh, he says uh, attention consumes information. Therefore, uh, the role of attention consuming uh, interspecies relationships to create an ever more complex. Ecosystemic metabolism mm-hmm. is is like what Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, all oh. these other thinkers saw as this self-evolving oh God, process that eats everything. Mega man. I need to note this down because the idea I was working on is called metabolic existentialism, and I'm trying to work out like basically combining uh, Spangler with McLuhan and uh, and I guess like complex systems to try to figure out. How do you do meta history? Well, read Darwin's Pharmacy. This yeah. will be his article in the Hypermodernity Anthology we're putting together. Yeah, because Darwin's Pharmacy is is the legit. I yeah. think it's it's like a sounding shot. That, yeah. yeah. So, like right. another aspect of it is my my presentation on uh, how do you understand value, and 
for like part one of it, which is on mythology, I said uh, mythologies are the most valuable signals which survive after stretches filtered out the noisy data over time. Their meanings have been encrypted by black box algorithms of the unconscious mind into symbolism. <laughs> and when I tweeted this, Nassim Taleb actually liked this comment. Sweet! Yeah, so I guess I'm on the right track. Yeah, just, awesome, just keep your trolls high. You know? yeah. John, what about you? Uh, well, okay, here's what I would say. is, In a, in a certain sense, it doesn't matter. It, it's, it's like... Um, <laughs> <laughs> the spirit is always with us, no matter what happens. The, it's, it's not. We're just. We're, we think we're the origin of our actions. We get ideas in our head, concepts, ideas, paradigms, and we think, "Oh, I have this idea. I'm effectuating this, and it's my own free will." But it's more likely that you're participating in a larger project that has to do with a relationship to the metaphysical other world, and that they're involved with all of this, no matter what happens. And so. Access to that spiritual world is always there. It's like Gebser's ever-present origin. You know, the, the Urshrung is always there. And it's always accessible. And there's always going to be new ideas coming out of that ever-present origin. Yeah, that's what you know? they do in meditation. And those ideas will code uh, for new cultural formations. And all, all we need to do is, is just trust the process. It's like Heidegger's idea of Galassenheit. You know, releasement. Let it go. Trust being. Listen to being. Let it go. Hear what it has to say, and follow that. And it's not, you know, everything that happens is utterly something that needs to happen. We just need to have faith in these processes. I love that. Man. The, the, it'll all work out. That's awesome. And on that note, as you're saying this, I think it's just so delicious to note that I went through that whole thing about the UFOs. To get to a point that I was going to make eventually about the mythic significance and inevitability of limitation and constraint. And like the moment that confinement, confinement yeah. says, okay, this is necessary. So I think that's actually the perfect place to uh, lock this conversation off. Yeah, this, and, this has been a blast. Yeah, so the constraint is actually there's there's more. We have to do this. Uh, it's like, no, wait a minute. I was just getting started. Yeah, I so, want my fucker. So, so <laughs> here's, I, yeah. I went through this whole conversation without even bringing up Lev Shestov. So Shestov, he wrote this book called Athens and Jerusalem, and he's all about how faith is actually the way you overcome dogma because. It's like a way of you going beyond the necessities. Everyone's constraining themselves with these necessities. And he said, no, you should be open to these Black Swan events. And you open up your consciousness, and basically that's how you deal with risks. And the he had this one um, article, not article, he had this one passage, it's like an aphorism in his book, All Things Are Possible, about these fish. So he had... Uh, the story is like these predatory fish and these little fish, right? They put a they put a little glass screen between them. So every time the predatory fish wants to eat the small fish, it would just run into the glass. Right. But then yeah. they remove the glass, and the uh, and they think that barrier is yeah, still they, there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we have to tempt that barrier, and that process is basically faith. And that's also uh, how you get to technological innovation. That's yeah, a great that's really place cool. to call it. Thanks. That was great. Thanks, you guys. This was mm-hmm. my Thank you. funnest conversation that I've ever had. Mm-hmm. Ever. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. 
Future Fossils is part of the MindPod network, along with Third Eye Drops, the Astral Hustle, Synchronicity Podcast, and an oodle of other fascinating programs. I encourage you to go to mindpodnetwork.com and subscribe to them all. And stay tuned, because we have some awesome episodes coming up on Future Fossils. But for now, may your now be exquisite, long, and wonderful.